BBI's Hoona Pig is one of the standout builds of 2022 and it didn't all go completely smoothly which is great because as enthusiasts not all of our projects go smoothly either. We're here at SEMA with Betim from BBI Autosport to talk a little bit more about this car. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures and presented it in podcast format for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So, there's a lot of information already out about this car. I don't want to right. try and follow everything that's already been done, but let, let's just start with the beginning. Obviously, you're a Porsche expert through and through. Getting there. <laughs> when Sorry. it came to this particular build, how did it even come about in the first place? Great question. This build actually is is a, the brainchild of a guy named Joe Scarbo, and he showed me this drawing about eight years ago of wanting to take an early 911, make it all-wheel drive. And he had it designed with an STI engine in it in the back. And then, you know, it was, I was like, I love the concept, but don't do that. <laughs> that engine won't fly? I mean, I respect those engines a lot. The EJs are great, whatever. But I just said, don't do that. We're going to do a Porsche-powered one one day. And then we just kept talking about talking about it. And then soon it became a packaging thing. So he had eight or nine-inch wheels in the rear and eight in the front. And couldn't get the car low enough because the wheels actually hit some of the body lines. And so I said, just push them out. And then it morphed into this this car, and then we started looking at if we were going to build this, because it was supposed to be a street car at first. If we we're going to build this, I want to go compete at Pikes Peak with it. So we started designing a Pikes Peak racer. And up until about two months before we were about to pull the trigger on the project, we made the decision to move the engine from the rear to the middle. And it's because we wanted to do an all-wheel drive system, and I wanted to run a square setup. I wanted to run the 1813s front, 1813s rear, and then it became... Well, now, if we move the engine in the middle, we can extend the wheelbase a little bit. So we went from 89 inches to 101. Let's just stop there because there's a bunch of stuff that you've already talked about that I don't want to forget about and I do want to jump into. Okay. So one of the more recent things you've just mentioned there is going from rear engine to mid-engine. Now, Porsche have been famous in, in sort of battling this physics problem mm -hmm. with all of the weight of the engine being rearward of the axle line for, right. for decades. They're well known for it. And by all accounts, they seem to have got it pretty well right. Yeah. But ultimately, there is still performance to be gained in swapping that around mid-engine, getting the weight of that engine forward of the axle line. Right. In 2007, I drove a Cayman for the first time. And it didn't feel like a 911, but I, I don't want to say this, but it felt a little more proper. It felt like, and I hate saying that, all the purists out there, but it just, it's dawned on me. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Get the mass in the center of the car, keep it low. You know, and back in the day, we tried building a Cayman. We were extending the wheelbase a little bit and putting a 911 engine in it. And that project kind of got stopped. We were always trying to inch up to doing that. And the one challenge, okay, there was a few challenges, but one of the challenges of us putting the engine in the middle was how do you take a horizontally posed flat six with a low CG and run a drive shaft past it? That was, is an obvious issue, correct? Yeah, it's an issue. You don't want to raise the engine. Uh, there's no room. You have the turbos and then you have the tunnels right underneath the engine for the diffuser. And that, that's also another reason why it made more sense to put the engine in the middle because we can run a real efficient, nice diffuser in the floor. I, I have always looked at the stock Porsche setup and figured that that really does limit you with the engine there on what you could do with the diffuser. So yeah, absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and that I think with Porsche, aside from the mass, 
the aero benefits of having the engine there is tremendous because you have such a, a more clean run and a way more efficient flow path on that lower diffuser without the sharp angles. Coming back to the base car that you chose, I mean, it's hard to really say what it is now because there's not a lot of factory Porsche that, that is still intact there. Right. But, I mean, clearly it's an older style, earlier 911, which on face value I, I wouldn't think is the most aerodynamic base to no. choose compared to you know, maybe a later 991, 992 shape. So. Right. What was the, the driving decision to go early? That's a great question. We've run later model 991s at Pike's Peak. We've modified them to go compete there. It really came down to a passion project. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Mike DeSold and DeSold Design. They do a 67 Camaro that they, we, they compete against us at Pike's Peak every year in open class. And I was so intrigued by him not taking a newer car and, and just making this tube frame beast and it still looks like a 67 Camaro. I like that. It, it does prove... You're right. The greenhouse of this car is horrible, horrible to make aerodynamic. And then we took it a step further. I want to let them cut the gutter rails off because I wanted the car to still kind of resemble a 911. And the iconic greenhouse of that tells a story immediately. Everything else is, you know, if you look at a DTM car, they try to retain the, the greenhouse, but then everything else is wild. So. I mean, I'd say that even as wild as this car has turned out, you know, even non-Porsche fanatics can look at it and, and know that it's a Porsche, right? Right. Yeah. And that was important because my business is Porsche and I just always had a thing for early cars. And when Joe started designing the car, he started designing it on a 72 and I just, I fell in love with the project then. And we just kind of just retained that. Okay, going for the full tube frame chassis gives you a huge amount of flexibility, but when you literally have a clean sheet of paper in that respect, does, does it cause difficulty trying to find a direction to start with? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, analysis paralysis comes in in full effect when you're like, well, what do we do? Like, so you have, to, you have to limit and discipline yourself. Let's say after we got the design done, or we're... Yeah, we weren't, didn't even have the design. We had basically a rolling design freeze, which doesn't make sense, but we had to freeze certain parts of the car for the long lead times because we had a short amount of time to do this. And so the front splitter and the front floor, front half of the floor, they were cutting tooling already before we had the chassis designed. So we started there. It got to the point where we had to slow down and say, hey, here's your front differential. Here's your, here's your packaging. We have to run. And maybe with more time, we could develop it a little further. But the amount of time that we had Garbo was all in. He's like, I have an, I have an upright design. And now that we have the gearbox, we're going to connect the dots and we're going to move our pickup points until we get a good, a good geometry trace. And then we're going to do the same to the front. And then we're going to put the wheels where they need to be. And then we had to stop at some point. But in terms of that analysis paralysis, it comes into, I think, any project or anything we do. Did the hard deadline actually help sort of prevent you just staying in that analysis paralysis for forever it absolutely did it was a blessing and a curse at the same time the hard deadline and we could segue into didn't do us any favors in the development side of things our testing with you had an engine failure there was like but we wouldn't have been here like if somebody said yeah you got about three years to do it your budget will go bananas your creativity goes nuts and then pretty soon you're engineering things that can't be produced and then you know so it, it on working under the gun in a time frame manner actually really helped us I mean it's never fun at the time with late nights and, and early mornings but when you do have that unlimited time frame it's sort of the Parkinson's law comes into play where the task will just expand to take up the amount of time and if there's no deadline well it'll, it'll never get finished and I think that's where we're all responsible for some projects gone wrong at some point Coming back to the, the bodywork, the, the aero side of things, obviously as cars have become more evolved and particularly for a, an event like Pike's Peak, mm. 
getting the, the aero package optimised and, and working really well can pay huge dividends, sometimes much more so than just adding engine power. Right. How did the development of that go and what about validation, CFD, I'm guessing it's not made it into an air tunnel. Yeah. Have you got sensors on the car that have allowed validation actually on the track? Great question. We work with Virus out of Indiana. They've been a partner of ours and helped us in anything that airflows through for a long time now. When I came to them with this project, they immediately went nuts. They're like, yes, there's a chassis designed yet? We're like, no. They're like, don't, don't, don't do it yet because we want to put tunnels here and, you know, and so we want to raise the floor and the chassis so then you can have a diffuser in the front also. So that was great. They came up with a number at 160 miles an hour at sea level. It should theoretically produce right around 6,000 pounds of downforce with a 44-56 split, 56 to the rear. But it's tunable also. We then have three laser ride height sensors on it and six potentiometers, that, so linear potentiometers on the dampers, and we were able to go 160 miles an hour. We were at elevation, not, not 9,000 feet, but we were at Pueblo, I think it's right around 6,200 feet. And at 160 miles an hour, when we backed the math out, it was closer to like 5,400 pounds. And because it's pretty solid numbers, no, it's, I mean, they got, they've gotten close, but you can also tell that it was stressing a lot of the chassis and then Scarborough also developed, I can get into that later, but the dampers are on a hydraulic ram for preload. So we're still working on all that. It's a neat system. We haven't tapped into its potential yet because active ride height is what you want, you know, and we're doing it in a non-conventional way. It's still in development, but it, it does, it does work. And then at some point, it starts preloading the dampers a little bit, and you get a rate increase. It's pretty neat, but we haven't licked it yet. Let's dive into that a little bit, because we, we did discuss on the Tuned In podcast, Sander, who is in charge of the electronics and yeah. some of the calibration for this, about it. But it is quite unique, and, and the, the background on this is with any aero car, the underbody is really important, and to get that underbody working, the, the ride height is, is really critical. Within reason, the lower we run the car, the more efficient it is. So we want to minimise that ride height, but of course at Pikes Peak, the upper section of the mountain is incredibly bumpy. A low ride height wouldn't work. So you've kind of got a solution to give the best of both worlds, which involves some hydraulic rams. So give us a, a, a sort of an overview of the mechanical system. So a traditional inboard mounted suspension, you'll have your dampers mounted to the rockers and the rock and then the damper on the other end is mounted to the fixed to the chassis or in a third spring, you you know how that works. So on this, you have instead of the chassis, you have an arm that comes up and both dampers meet into this, this arm. And then on the bottom side, you have a pole hydraulic. So the hydraulics actually will change the position of the mounting point of the dampers. So you can preload the springs, raise the car, lower the car. In, in that manner and you got to do it within a window so you're not you're not throwing your your uh, your sprung mass curve out the window to, to be clear as well the way this is utilized at least as i understood it from sander i mean it's it's not active in the old f1 sense where it's it's actively tracking a ride height target the whole way up the mountain it's more a case of he's geo fenced it so that the section that you know is is really bumpy near the top it will just ride raise the ride height that's where it sits and then i believe even after it's past that it can lower it back down is that that the gist of it that's correct. With uh, Sander, with with his INS, has an incredible. Uh, did you guys ever talk about the INS? Yeah, game? we did. So that's it's it's me. I love. I could talk for days on that one. But that is true. So it is geofenced. But with the three laser ride height sensors and all the potentiometers, Sander can actually have a prescribed ride height. Let's say we want a fifty mil in the nose and a two degree rake throughout the the whole chassis. It it will start to maintain that. And because the car is incredibly soft right now uh, for compliance and the, all the bumps at Pikes, you do need to 
address the forces of arrow because it, it does want to bury that thing down. Then you lose you lose your your wing essentially. Like I said, we're still on the development side of that, and its capabilities. I think it's going to be a lot of fun once we get to that testing time. I, th- I think probably what's important to mention there is once you've got the mechanical system physically installed, tested, and you know it works, mm-hmm. then the capabilities really come down mm-hmm. to, well, how smart do we want to get with the firmware and the adjustability we add, correct? Exactly. That's exactly right. We did so much on this car in so little time. There's a lot of unconventional stuff we did to it that we just need to get right, mm-hmm. and we haven't gotten it right yet. So we're, we're going to continue to develop and push because we need a lot of seat time. I think the car only has about six and a half, seven hours on it total right now and that's with two engines and so part of those hours were were chasing problems you know trying something and chase oh we got to fix it back to the shop come back and then you're losing your time and the pike's peak deadlines coming closer 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 and so anybody who's done these projects understands that that you're going to run into this is it's just we unfortunately just ran out of time do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. I think it, it was a real view into how some of these projects go and probably more more of the projects go this way than those who just go swimmingly. But you know, normally the, the social media highlights reel is, is only the good side of things. So it's actually refreshing that we really got an open and honest appraisal of what was going on there. And I think probably for a lot of people watching it, it was a bit of an eye openness. Oh, it, it doesn't just go right every yeah, time. Yeah, no, it's BBI has been alive for almost 15 years now and we've made a lot of mistakes. We've failed tremendous projects but the old saying we've learned so much from that you know and and being a little bit outside of your comfort zone i think it's welcoming i appreciate it the team's ethos of that way we really look to try to really break things to uncover some opportunities i, I think we generally most of the time learn more from the failures than we do from the successes so again i don't want to dwell on it but it is oh. just a, a fact of life yeah. Okay, let's move on to, to the engine package. And it's not obviously now running the original air-cooled engine. Right. Uh, what have you actually got in there? Right now, the engine's from a 2017 GT3R, the FIA GT3 car that they run in the VLN. And that was the base. So I liked the architecture of the engine. I liked being able to have massive ports, a lot of room for a big camshaft, uh, so we can get good numbers up with lower boost pressures, you know, lower manifold pressures. So good good volumetric efficiency. Very good volumetric efficiency. What I took for granted or our team, what we took for granted is we've done this to Metzger's forever. It's a shim under bucket. It's a robust engine. You can run a light spring in there. And for some reason, when we were running a light spring, uh, our seat pressures were just not enough. So we were blowing the 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 valve open. we didn't have enough valve control is what basically what happened so you get valve float in, valve in that float. instance yep we got valve float and then we readdressed it got more valve float and so we had to design a spring i guess there was a harmonics also that was happening design a spring with gse and a retainer package that retained that a little bit higher on the sleeve of the shim the shim's like a little biscuit like a ear, hearing aid battery and the rocker that sits on top of it when we got the big failure spit the shim out and then the rocker just hit the retainer and spit the keepers out that sucked because we could have, we shouldn't have not ran it, but we were there. We're going to go for it. H- hindsight, so as 2020. I know, as well. I know. And so it's still painful to re- rehash that. But um, so what we did is we tried doing it again. Right, you know, we shimmed the springs up, but there's just not a lot of real estate with the springs we were using. So we had to completely have a step back, get somebody else involved that understands valve train tremendously and really have a, a look at 
I took for granted the Metzger power plant. I mean, you could do 2,000 horsepower out of one of those things and spin it to almost 10,000 RPMs and just beat the death out of it. This is, it's a lot more dainty. It's a lot more refined. I think I approached it with a hammer instead of a tweezers. Expensive learning curve. And obviously yeah. these, these engines and parts for these engines aren't exactly thick on the ground, particularly on the weekend of, of Pike's Peak. Right. Uh, for those who sort of aren't following there, that lack of control of the valve train means that the valve can float essentially then not everything's contacting and that allows that shim to fall out right. and, and then as you mentioned that the rest kind of unfolds pretty quickly and the, and the result's not right. particularly pleasant. So you fix that so that now with a, a proper valve spring package from right. GSC you mentioned? Yeah. Yeah, now, now we have a proper valve spring package. Greg over there evaluated everything. We chopped a few cylinder heads in half, looked at our, uh, because they're really hard to get down in there. It's a beautiful head, but chopped some cylinder heads in half, really measured it all out, and then profiled the cams again and watched everything and then did the backwards math. Like if you have anti-leg instead of a FAV valve, that's going to add some issues in the exhaust stream. And it's going to, your valve starts to become a diaphragm rather than a closing valve. And I think that's that coupled with the light seat pressures and a couple other things. He, he looked at it all. I made a spreadsheet for him and he came back. He said, this is ideally where you'd like to be. I go, okay, let's go find a spring off the shelf because we don't have any time. He found a spring and then made the retainers to hold everything together. And so now that seems to be working really well. Now we can actually, now I feel like we can actually get started and go test. All right, let's come back to the, the base engine. So you mentioned GT3R. Uh, that is uh, a naturally aspirated engine. Right. So what have you done to allow you to fit two turbochargers and run some boosts through it? Is there any fundamental changes needed or is the engine strong enough in base form to take boost? No, that's a good question. We had to uh, redo. We built a fortified rod with CP, a piston set. We utilized the OEM. I think it's like an let. I forgot what they call the... Uh, the cylinder liners. Uh, is that coat, coating on the, the sleeves? Yeah, the sleeves are, they're still aluminum, but they're electroplated, some, something like that. I'll, I'll remember in a minute. And then we we did a high nickel content valve, you know, like an Inknell exhaust valve and a super alloy intake valve, reprofiled the cams, and then, you know, get rid of some of the overlap. And, and that's really what we, that's it. Then we manifolds, turbo, or intake and exhaust manifolds, and that was it. So where, where would you be in terms of horsepower now? What sort of boost pressure are you using to make that? And how does that compare to the naturally aspirated power? Good question. Naturally aspirated, the engine unrestricted will make about 580 horsepower. It's a four liter. When we were just testing, we were running one bar of boost at one bar of manifold pressure. And the Motec told us that we were, we were at 1100 horsepower. And so now we're going to put it on an engine dyno and do, we're going to do some stress testing over at actually at Porsche Motorsport and just run it through one of their rigorous test cycles for a 24-hour engine. That, then we're going to see if I can break their dyno. That sounds like it's going to give it hell. And those numbers probably sound like they stand up a, a, about right anyway. Yeah. Is that the sort of power level you need it to be running at Pike's Peak? And then the obvious knock-on question from that is with the, the low air density at Pike's Peak with the altitude, you know, what does it actually end up being by the time you take that into account? And how does that vary from the start to 14,000 feet at the finish line? That's a good question. At sea level, the car at probably 20 pounds of boost or 1.5 bar should make, I think, with what Garrett told us with the turbocharger and what Sander figured out, it should be theoretically in around the 1,400 horsepower mark. At the starting line, we'll be at about 1,100 with that same the same manifold pressure. And then as it goes up, we're just going to pay close attention to what we did, pay close attention to the, the turbine speeds. And Garrett gave us a very specific number to hit. Don't, don't exceed this. Don't exceed. They actually came by today to, to 
say, how is everything going? Don't exceed this. And so what Sander was kind of doing is just like, just as we're climbing, the air density drops, the turbo speeds want to go up to, to compensate, he, he would cap that. And just, this is our ceiling. It doesn't matter what the manifold pressure is. It doesn't matter any of that. We just have to keep the turbo speeds here. And what he calculated and figured out when we were testing up top, it was about 900 horsepower at the top. We'll see how that translates in the, in the dyno. And ultimately, everyone with a, an engine that's internal combustion at Pike's Peak is, is under the same constraints of, yeah. of air pressure. So unless you're lucky enough to be EV, it, it kind of is what it is. Right. Make the most of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in, in terms of the testing you just mentioned at Porsche's own facility, mm-hmm. uh, so the way we, we tune in the aftermarket... Un- un- unofficially. Uh, unofficially, yeah. obviously. Uh, the, the way we tune and test in the aftermarket, I mean, the, the engine might get a, a, a dozen sort of 10 or 12 second pulls on the dyno. That's quite different to how OEs actually do durability mm. testing. Can you give us some insight into what you're going to put this engine through? They do a durability test schedule for the normally aspirated version of this engine, which, which we're going to go after, because I want to see the whole system work. But they, it's uh, equivalent to 20,000 kilometers, and it's across a 24-hour period. And they have, well, they won't tell me, but they have a, an entire cycle of ramping it up, down full throttle peak rpm i think that's almost eight minutes see they want to see temperatures normalize they want to make sure that everything is at the end of the day it's heat right and it's with this engine i'm almost imagining how fast do you want to go for how long and it really is a thermal thermal shedding equation there so they're going to see where where things normalize at and if we have to address something we will i'm nervous but we have to do it, you know. And I, I guess the upside of this is if you can pass that test, you can probably be pretty confident Ken or anyone else can throw anything they've got at it yep. and uh, the engine at least is going to be pretty happy there. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's also going to give Sander and Oscar the opportunity to spend some time with it because I feel bad as we're going along the testing schedule and trying to get this car done. Every time I'd get out of the car, we'd have a problem that we have to fix. And, and they're like, no, hey, I want to I want to look at something. Nope, we got to go back up. No. And so this is going to give them the time they need because really they, ha- they haven't spent enough time on this car. And it's because we haven't been able to give them that, that time. Now we're going to learn a lot. Hopefully maybe we break something and covers, a, you know, another weak link somewhere, which I'd rather do that than succeed and not know. It. And then are we on borrowed time? So really, I, I think, the engine and the electronics, I really am hoping that they get enough time on it because I feel bad. I mean, they do. They, they're scrambling trying to get it done because of the weird time frames, and I know they need to focus. Well, the upside is we're here at SEMA, and it's November 2022. You've, you've got about eight months now, right, right. seven months before Pikes Peak mm-hmm. in 2023. So right. it sounds like you've got plenty of time, but of course, time always disappears much faster than you'd expect. Yeah. But we hope that at least this time around, the car will be properly tested and hopefully can show what it's actually capable of. Yeah, that's the idea. The idea is to get, get that car, get some hours under it, the car needs the seat time and then we're going to get Ken in there and after we're happy with the car it's going to be him and the machine and really getting him comfortable with the thing and get getting it wrapped around him because right now it's kind of set up for how I would drive it but it's a little softer than we should have it and there's there's a lot to be gained there but once Ken gets in it we really want to tailor this to him ultimately I know it's a bit of a loaded question but but how fast can this be up Pike's Peak, are we likely to see the outright record be challenged by the car do you think? I'm not sure. Um, that's a good question. We've theorized maybe getting close to the petrol record, but I would like to see the thing deep into the eights. I don't know if we have enough car to go into the sevens. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not trying to be negative, but really the reality is when you look at the weight and you, you kind of start 
putting it together. And it comes down to seat time also. And so there's a lot of factors there. I would love to see an outright record. Obviously, that's in the back of my head. If we were going to do that, we can put it in unlimited. And there would be a few changes that we'd do to it. We'd probably run nitrous and we'd probably run a little more sweat back, you know, extend the diffuser in the rear a little bit, different rear wing. But right now to the rules in open class, this is this is about as far as we can go. All right. Well, as I said, there's a long time to go before Pike's Peak, but we do wish you all the best. Awesome. It'll be, be great to see it actually do what it was meant to do. So we wish you all the best for Pike's Peak next, next year and, of course, the testing up until then. Now, if people want to reach out and find out more about what BBI Autosport do, how they best to do so. Instagram kind of gives a good snapshot of what we're doing um, as BBI Autosport. And, you know, uh, Mobile One, that you follow them, they're going to be following our journey a lot. Hoonigans also, Ken Block also. So there's all of those guys on Instagram. You'll be everywhere. Yeah, hopefully. Okay, thanks for your time there, Ben. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. I enjoyed this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to help us getting the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe. It's a one-stop shop when it comes to going faster, stopping quicker, and cornering better.